0: I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Profits Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Hey, everybody. This is Manny Faces, producer and host of the award-winning Newsbeat podcast, where we shine a light on social justice issues that don't always get enough attention through a unique blend of hard-hitting journalism and music. Welcome to another special episode documenting the devastating fallout from the insidious novel coronavirus as it continues to decimate nations, claim lives, and pummel economies across the globe. Now, what's been emerging since our last episode is a bit of a clearer picture of the faces and folks represented in those gruesome numbers. Surprise, surprise, they're predominantly black and brown. Yeah, the coronavirus has been disproportionately affecting African Americans and Hispanics, with preliminary figures revealing the death rate among minority groups to be double that of their white counterparts, and testing to overwhelmingly be administered to whiter and wealthier folks than those of color. Well, to anyone who's been awakened to the sheer brutal structural inequities this country has been designed with since its founding, there's really no mystery at all. In fact, civil rights and civil liberties advocates predicted exactly this, way before the body count started piling up. The answer is racism the threads of which have been sewn into the very fabric of this nation and these brutal truths are merely being laid bare yet again in these sinister figures as you'll hear from our amazing guests the government's quote guidelines to stop the spread merely perpetuate these inequities you also hear about weathering a term coined by one of our esteemed guests whereby the constant, unrelenting, omnipresent stress always crushing these communities has worn down their immune system and other vital physiological processes, to the point where they're much more susceptible to a virus as vicious as COVID-19, which demands every ounce of health and energy to fight, and top medical assistance. Breaking all this down for you is Dr. Uche Blackstock, a board-certified emergency medicine physician and founder and CEO at Advancing Health Equity. Dr. Sherelle Barber, a social epidemiologist and assistant research professor at Drexel University, Dornsife School of Public Health, and Arlene Geronimus, a professor in the Department of Health Behavior and Health Education and associate director and research professor in the Population Studies Center at the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan. So without further ado, this episode explores how racism fuels higher coronavirus death rates.
1: I just wanna make a brief comment to get back to the discussion about the health disparities in the African-American community because it really is very important. And the reason I wanna bring it up because I couldn't help sitting there reflecting about sometimes when you're in the middle of a crisis, like we are now with the coronavirus, it really does have ultimately shine a very bright light on some of the real weaknesses and foibles in our society. Health disparities have always existed for the African-American community. But here again, with the crisis, how it's shining a bright light on how it's unacceptable that is.
2: Many of us in the health equity space, we were aware of these racialized health disparities that existed prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. And despite significant advances in healthcare innovation and technology, these racialized health disparities have persisted. So the communities that we're now seeing most heavily impacted by COVID-19, mostly black communities, carry the highest chronic disease burden, diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, asthma, we know that those that's a result of a structural racism, which is a key driving force of the social determinants of health.
3: Now to that growing and disturbing trend, the disproportionate impact COVID-19 is having on communities of color, from New York to Detroit to nearby Baltimore, where I drove this week to see for myself. Baltimore is a majority black city. It's seen more than 750 infections and 22 deaths so far, and it's about to get worse, labeled as an emerging hotspot for this deadly virus.
2: So we know that these communities um, have limited access to safe housing, to access to healthy food, um, access to quality education, access to um, secure job employment. And so all of those factors have really made Black communities incredibly vulnerable so that when a pandemic like this happens, we essentially have a crisis on a
4: crisis. And that's because across every major cause of death in the United States, Black folks have a higher mortality rate, and that's across the board. It's not these behavioral explanations, or sometimes you know we get into some of the genetic explanations. It really is structural racism, systemic racism that has existed since slavery, and that manifests in so many of our institutions um, and really give way to these higher rates of morbidity and mortality in African-American communities. My background um, is in a racial residential segregation. And I think, you know, as we're thinking about that legacy, the re- legacy that dates back to the 1930s of redlining, of, of racial violence, of structural violence, and then disinvestment for decades, really gets us to a place where the residential environments that Black folks and other marginalized racial groups uh, occupy are really separate and unequal, and not just separate and unequal in terms of the people but resources, investments, et cetera. One of the ways that we think that's playing out right now with the coronavirus is one is access to healthcare. Who has access to quality, affordable healthcare in this moment? And we know that communities of color typically don't have as good of access to healthcare.
0: Dr. Anthony Fauci, head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health, told a congressional committee yesterday that the testing system in the U.S. is, quote, failing.
1: The system does not, is not really geared to what we need right now, what you are asking for. That is a failing. And
3: A failing, yes. It it
1: is a failing. Let's admit it. The fact is the way the system was set up is that the public health component that Dr. uh, Dr. Redfield was talking about was a system where you put it out there in the public and a physician asks for it and you get it. The idea of anybody getting it easily, the way people in other countries are doing it, we're not set up for that. Do I think we should be? Yes, but we're not.
4: That's really important in this moment because where testing is taking place, where people have access to testing is typically in hospitals and healthcare settings. So if we have whole communities that can't even get tested and know that they have the disease, what does that mean about the kind of transmission within communities? Especially since we know that this virus is asymptomatic in many folks, right? So what I'll say is testing has been botched and reckless across the board, but for these communities who don't have access just to affordable quality health care, it's, it's really critical in this moment, right? So that's one thing. We also know that within the healthcare care system, if you happen to access it, treatment options are usually out of reach because they're unaffordable, right? And we also know, and it's documented time and time again, that when Blacks and Latinos and other marginalized racial groups interact with the health care system, it can literally be deadly, right? So we see this with like the maternal mortality rates among Black women, We know that there are instances of discrimination, of bias, and we know anecdotally that people who are presenting with symptoms with the coronavirus, they're being turned away for care. We're in this situation where we have scarce resources, limited beds, limited life-saving equipment like ventilators. Then you're going to (laughs) see these biases and that discrimination play out. We think that's some of what's happening.
0: Mayor de Blasio said the city will soon release data on the racial breakdown of coronavirus cases. And in fact, Governor Murphy in New Jersey did that today as well. This is an emerging storyline today. The numbers will likely show that the disease is disproportionately affecting people in lower income communities and people of color. There is
3: fear too of racial disparity in New York City's coronavirus infections. According to the city controller's report, 75% of all frontline workers are people of color, 19% are non-citizens, and 8% lack access to health insurance.
2: It's been very interesting over the last few weeks. Um, So I work part-time in various urgent care locations in central Brooklyn. Most of our neighborhoods are relatively diverse. Some are gentrifying areas. Typically we've seen a pretty racially and socioeconomically diverse patient population, but definitely over the last uh, three weeks that demographic has shifted. We're seeing mostly black and brown patients. We're seeing patients who are essential workers. They work for transit. They work for the post office. They still have to go to work and they're exposed to the public. We see a lot of service workers that are still working for um, food apps like Seamless that are out there making deliveries. And we're seeing definitely less white and affluent patients who have the uh, ability to actually work remotely from home. And so it's interesting because I I started noticing this a few, about three weeks ago, and I asked the other staff at our urgent care, I said, are are you noticing this? And everyone's like, yeah, we're totally noticing that we're seeing predominantly black and brown patients. And then the interesting part that happened was over the last few weeks, our urgent care organization has had to close down some sites and those are sites that are in mainly white affluent areas because the volume is so low and they've had to shift staffing over to black and brown neighborhoods because the volumes are are insane. And have shot up significantly. And so it was interesting because even this observation that I was initially making, it, it turned out to be true. And then when, you know, some of the data came out within New York City about which zip codes where the most COVID-19 cases were, that kind of confirmed things. And then when we just got that data from the New York City Department of Health a few days ago, showing that, you know, Black and Latino New Yorkers were twice as likely to die from COVID-19 than, than white New Yorkers. It, it definitely sank in that those observations I had a few weeks ago had been um, confirmed. But one thing that I thought was interesting that I wanna just share is that when testing first came out, the CDC was recommending that those who should be tested, they required, a, they would have traveled to one of the endemic areas. So Italy or China, or they knew some, someone who had been tested. And the fact is, is that, you know, most like working class black folks in central Brooklyn, they would not have traveled to Italy or China or known someone who had been tested because at that point it was mostly politicians and celebrities, you know, the entire Utah Jazz team. And so those people were being excluded from testing and then come to find out that coronavirus had actually been circulating in these communities for weeks. And so I think now that how many cases we missed because of those initial testing criteria. And as we know, testing availability has been incredibly limited obviously, more so um, in black and brown areas.
1: Okay, let me now talk to you about the overall situation. I hate to say this, but it's true. We are now the epicenter of this crisis right here in the nation's largest city.
2: In New York City, on average, 20 people die a day at home. But since the pandemic hit us a few weeks ago, it's now up to 200 people die at home. I wonder if part of that, what we'll find out when we look at racial demographics, is that people, they want to stay home. They don't trust the healthcare system. They feel like, I'd rather just stay here until I need to go. And by then by that time, you know, it's too late because I even have patients that I see in my urgent care clinic that come in with symptoms of COVID-19. And I have this conversation with them about, hey, I'm worried about you. I think I may need to send you to the emergency department. And they're like, no, I don't wanna go there and die. And
0: in the community at large, in the great city of Chicago, Chicago, there are very, very worrying signs in the data about their their outbreak outbreak and its contours. contours. African-American residents are dying at nearly six times Six times the rate of white residents in Chicago. African Americans make up about 30 percent of Chicago's population, but 68 percent of Chicago's deaths from coronavirus.
1: The disturbingly, this information is going to show you that slightly more than 70 percent of all the deaths—70 percent of all the deaths in Louisiana are of African Americans, and so that deserves more attention. And we're going to have to dig into that and see uh, what we can do uh, to slow that trend down. To slow that trend down. To slow that trend down. There's also lessons to be learned. Why are
0: more African Americans and Latinos affected? We're seeing this around the country. Now, the numbers in New York are not as bad as the disparities we see in other places across the country, but there still are apparently disparities. Why?
4: You know, a lot of folks say America's built on racist politics, racist science, <laughs> uh, racist rhetoric. Right. And so the racist science was that, you know, black folks are just inferior. And you know, one of my favorite scholars who is just amazing, W.B. Du Bois, in his book, The Philadelphia Negro, really took that to task in a, in a time where it was still very widespread or that blacks were just biologically or innately somehow different. Mm-hmm. His work really showed that even if you look within Black populations, you can see variation depending on where people live and things like that. So that's not biology. That's, that's the conditions around folks. We've shown that time and time again <laughs> with data that this whole idea of a genetic predisposition to disease is just false and that we need to really get beyond that. But again, like I said, one of the other narratives that we're really seeing is this behavioral narrative. Especially when, you know, looking at things like, oh, well, blacks have this higher prevalence of those underlying chronic conditions like diabetes that make the coronavirus more deadly um, and more severe, pointing to obesity and things like that. But, you know, they're not talking about the ways in which uh, black communities have been um, uh, redlined and access to healthy foods and all of the resources necessary to live a healthy life. That's the issue. So the same structural racism that is shaping the coronavirus shapes underlying chronic conditions. We're not talking about that. And so if anything is quote unquote behavioral, it's because of the choices that people have and have been given. If you think about it, who's dying? in the Black population is typically at younger ages. And that's because these chronic conditions emerge for Blacks and other groups much earlier, again, because of this chronic stress and there's the weathering hypothesis, et cetera. So even that idea that, oh, if you're over a certain age, if you don't understand this from a racial justice lens, you'll, you'll miss the boat that we might need to be saying, age, yes, is a factor, but for Black folks, we might need to be paying attention to them at younger ages. First of all, we have to be clear that in December 2019, none of us was immune. So all of us should have
3: an equal opportunity of being infected. But what this virus has done is taken away the mask, the veneer, pulled the sheets off of this myth of equal opportunity in this society. Black folks are getting infected more because they're exposed more. Once infected, they're dying more. Their bodies, our bodies, have borne the burden of chronic disinvestment, active neglect in our communities. It is because of structural racism, which puts us in the more forward-facing jobs so that we're more exposed and less valued, don't even have the protection that we need. You know, the residential segregation, it turns into employment segregation, educational segregation, environmental hazard segregation. All of those insults in our bodies have given us more of these so-called pre-existing conditions. So once we're infected, we have more severe outcomes from the disease. I first hypothesized weathering, I'd say about 30 years ago, Um, but I have been working on it for those three decades since developing the ideas and empirically testing it and learning and testing the possible biological mechanisms for weathering. So that now weathering I think is a well accepted theory of increasing health vulnerability and um, accelerated biological aging among populations who are subjected to environmental and material and psychosocial stressors on a chronic basis which in this country often points to african americans and other ethnic and racial minorities and also the poor weathering is a physiological process that takes place as a result of years and even decades of chronic exposure to a physiological stress response. We're all built to have these responses and in small doses and in response to acute threats to our life, often called the fight or flight response. This is very protective for us, but we were never built to deal with chronic cascades of stress hormones in our bodies at such physiological stress. Processes activate. And so these threats that activate these physiological processes go well beyond what we talk about as perceived stress. They include certain objective stressors like toxins in the environment or not having enough heat or being hungry, or being too cold or too hot in a heat wave. They include having to, on a very sustained basis, engage in difficult interpersonal interactions, such as with your landlord to get heat in your apartment. They include not getting enough sleep. They include things that cause you anxiety. We were adapted to be vigilant and to reply or respond physiologically even to false alarms because that's obviously a better way to prevent being killed than if you miss true alarms. And these alarms can also just be psychological. I mean, any one of us can think about even a trauma, even with a small t that we may have have experienced. And if we remember it, We can start feeling these physiological responses in our body just as we sit here and so our system is very sensitive to it and vigilant to responding to true threats and false alarms as a result what happens mechanistically is when you have this physiological stress response it increases your breathing heart rate your blood pressure It circulates oxygenated blood towards your large muscles quickly. It activates your sympathetic nervous system, releases stress hormones like epinephrine and norepinephrine, and it triggers the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis to release the stress hormone cortisol. And that SNS activation causes the veins in our body to constrict, it increases blood pressure as the heart pumps with greater force. Then those release stress hormones also activate a breakdown of triglycerides, fat cells, uh, protein and non-exercising muscles, glycogen and other body cells. Glycogen is a form of glucose. Meanwhile, cortisol also disrupts any insulin in the bloodstream from storing these released energy sources back into their storage cells. So, as a result, our bloodstreams become flooded with glucose, fatty acids, and amino acids that are used to fuel the muscles in the body and respond to the stressor also the unleashing of this sort of complex cascade in our system can also physiologically propel us toward eating comfort foods, in fats, and sugars, and also to experience drug cravings. When this happens in short spurts, you know, no harm, no foul, and in fact, it's probably saved your life. But when this happens regularly due to chronic, prolonged, and repeated physiological stress reactions, in order to withstand the increasing blood pressure The veins that regulate blood flow become hardened. You've heard of hardening of the artery. The arteries and veins also become damaged throughout your body. blood pressure is increased and you can become hypertensive. Immune cells begin to cluster in these areas as they sort of rush to repair damaged cells. Along with the fatty acids and amino acids and elevated low-density lipoprotein, cholesterol and glucose are excreted from the cells for energy. This creates buildup of arthrosclerotic plaque in the damaged veins and arteries. And that can induce increased blood pressure, can lead to hypertensive disease in the heart. The blood returning at a higher force can cause the muscles in the left ventricle to thicken. That can enlarge the heart and potentially trigger an irregular heartbeat. Meanwhile, the body expends significant amount of energy in secreting protein, sugars, and triglycerides and then releasing insulin. So these processes can damage insulin secreting cells in the pancreas and create insulin resistance leading to diabetes. The disruptions in the heart can cause heart failure while clogged circulatory systems or traveling flat can cause embolisms that obstruct blood flow leading to the heart or lungs. It can lead to heart attacks or stroke if they go to the brain. So you can begin to see how chronic stress is very harmful to your health and can also lead to these early onset of multiple chronic diseases. But where weathering also adds to this equation is that vital body organs like our lungs and our immune system, which are all comprised of cells that renew themselves through cell division to maintain our health, in addition to being crucial for growth and development, that cell division is also responsive to the need to repair damaged cells in those organs and tissues and body systems. So if those cells sustain damage on a chronic basis, as they do if you're having your physiological stress response activated, You'll reach the limit of cell division at an earlier age, which endangers your health and longevity.
0: Okay, so this story comes to us from blackdoctor.org. According to a recent study, African Americans are less likely to receive pain meds in the ER because many medical students associate race with pain tolerance. In other words, blacks are believed to have thicker skin and therefore are routinely undertreated. A systematic review published in Academic Emergency Medicine gathered all the research on physicians that measured implicit bias with the implicit association test and included some assessments of clinical decision-making. Most of the nine studies used vignettes to test what physicians would do in certain situations. The majority of studies found an implicit preference for white patients, especially among white physicians. Two found a relationship between this bias and clinical decision-making.
2: In 2016, there was a study out of um, UVA School of Medicine where they uh, asked medical students and residents about false beliefs about Black people in pain. So, they asked, so the authors came up with these false beliefs. They said Black people age more slowly, or Black people's skin is thicker, Black people don't feel pain as much. And this is 2016. They also gave them mock cases. And the only difference between the case was the race of the patient. And they asked them to prescribe a certain amount of medication and to rate the patient's pain. And they found that the students who actually, 50% actually believed in these false beliefs. So 50% of medical students and residents believed in these false beliefs. And the ones that believed in the false beliefs were more likely to underrate the Black patient's pain and to give less pain medication. Obviously, there's a lot of work to be done, but I think that just speaks to how structural racism and the legacy of legalized discrimination in this in this country is, is absolutely not addressed in medical school or, or any health professional school to the degree to which it should be. But I think it should actually begin even before then. Like the 1619 Project, they created, I think, a K through 12 sort of addition. Slavery is foundational. Anti-Black racism is foundational to the history of this country. Everyone should be aware of these issues. And so, of course, I would have colleagues that believe this, right? I mean, why wouldn't they? But also we live in a society with racism. And so that doesn't stop when you walk into the four walls of a hospital or you walk into your exam room with your patient. No matter how altruistic you are and how kind or well-meaning you think you're being, I think most physicians would probably say, like, I'm doing this because I want to help people. But the fact is, and then even now in a pandemic where we have limited resources, things I'm thinking about is who's going to be tested when you're rationing care and deciding who goes on a ventilator, how are you making that decision? And then also, how are you making decisions decision about who comes off a ventilator in terms of futility? You know, is this ventilator helping the person? So these are issues that we need to start discussing very, very early on. I would say
3: structural racism is a public health threat and it works through many, many avenues. And one of which is obviously discrimination in housing and education and job opportunities. But there are other ways. Environmental injustice is, is a way, just a psychosocial lack of having your values honored in public, um, the stigma associated with racism, the anxiety, the need to be vigilant. You know, what What does it mean to tell people to wear bandanas over their noses and faces, you know, when they go into public places if they're, you know, African-American, especially African-American male? Maybe that does get in the way, disrupt any transmission of viruses, but at the same time, it at a minimum heightens their vigilance and stress reactions as they worry about and maybe even are surveilled in public or arrested. I don't know if you saw the physician who was arrested for putting protective equipment in his van to take to a community where he was helping treat COVID-19, but it was assumed instead that he was stealing all this protective this city, equipment. But we're going to end today's show in Florida, where the Miami Police Department is under fire after a video surf of an officer handcuffing and detaining an African-American doctor outside his home. The man, Armin Anderson, was wearing a mask and preparing for a volunteer shift, Hel- hoping protect homeless people from the spread of COVID-19, when a patrol car pulled up to his home. Surveillance video from Dr. Henderson's house shows him loading a van with supplies before the encounter. Dr. Henderson says the police officer handcuffed him after accusing him of littering and then asking for identification, which Henderson did not have on him. The officer was not wearing a mask. Dr. Henderson was. He had to yell to his wife inside their home to present identification before the officer finally released him. These things happen on a daily basis and with subtler cues than that. And so there's so many ways that we've just sort of denigrated and ignored what the lived experience is of uh, Black Americans. And as we do
4: that, that itself contributes to weathering. I'm a social epidemiologist. You know, but not everyone is trained in thinking about these issues. And again, we oftentimes default to the behavioral and uh, unfortunately sometimes the genetic explanations without taking into consideration this much broader context of structural racism, of systemic racism, of institutions over time that have really uh, been detrimental to communities of color. We need to respond in this moment, but we also need to maintain our commitment to dismantling these systems. And dismantling these structures because otherwise we're going to be right back here when another pandemic when another you know natural disaster comes we're going to see these same racial inequalities play out
0: once again i'm manny faces for newsbeat thank you for listening As you heard, this is all critically, critically important stuff. Essential to not just understanding why the hell communities of color are being so disproportionately affected, but how we can help successfully prepare and better remedy the next pandemic. As you learned, all of these socioeconomic and even physiological factors predisposing minority groups to the lethal wrath of COVID-19 has existed long before it spread from across the world to our shores. And unless we include these bitter truths in the conversation, such atrocities can never be fully remedied. So let's keep these issues in the discussion. Let's include them on every talking point about this disease. Let's demand their inclusion and then demand these racist underpinnings and consequential inequities finally be addressed. And on that note, be sure to tune in for our next full episode, which tackles the racist policies of redlining and features original rap lyrics from our longtime artist and residence, Silent Night. These issues are all related and you'll see why. Now, again, as always, if you were inspired or learned something new or dug anything about this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your favorite podcasts, rate us, review us, and share us with everyone you love and everyone you hate. Post us on social media, do all the things. We appreciate it. Every little bit helps. Also, be sure to visit usnewsbeat.com where you can also hear all of our previous episodes, read accompanying full-length stories, and learn more about our guests and artists and these issues. Shout out to our parent company, inbound marketing, sales enablement, and client retention, Diamond HubSpot Partner Agency, More Creative Studios. They remain open for business, so please, if you're interested in top quality marketing, SEO optimization services, lead generation, and more, check them out at MoreyCreative.com. A special heartfelt thank you from the Newsbeat and Maury Creative family to all the healthcare workers, law enforcement, military, supermarket workers, everybody out there on the front lines who are risking their lives and in many cases, sacrificing them to protect us all. My name is Manny Faces. Again, everyone, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon. One love. Stay healthy. Peace.